Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest startup community, inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There is no time to wait, so let's begin. This episode is brought to you by Oracle for Startups. Welcome back, everyone. Chris Jonu here, and you're in for a treat today. We have Scott Belsky, uh, founder of Behance and Adobe's chief product officer. Love Scott. Um, and he is being interviewed by the one, the only, Startup Grind's founder, Derek Anderson. Glad to see you out the house, mate. Dusting the old cobwebs off and... Um, Pandemic put you back in, but this was a time in the not so long, not so distant past when we were free to roam and meet in person so long ago. <laughs> oh man, oh no, all right. And, um, you know, Scott, incredible entrepreneur, founder of you know one of the world's leading platforms for the creative industry where you can showcase and discover creative work. Um, that was acquired by Adobe, he's now their chief product officer. Um, in addition to being an incredible entrepreneur, he's also, uh, you know, was early stage as an investor in Pinterest, Uber, Sweetgreen, and Periscope. Knows his way around a, a good deal. And <laughs> and then as an, an author, I mean, the, the Making Ideas Happen had a profound impact on myself. Check it out if you have not read it. And The Messy Middle. Incredible individual and, um, and a nice informal chat. Hope you enjoy it. Oh, thanks for having me here. It's great to have you, and I, of all the things to forget about your, what you've done, I, this thing I've been carrying around for many weeks, uh, and also uh, all day today, uh, the author of The Messy Middle, which we're going to talk about, uh, and it's a, a really fascinating book, and actually, uh, Scott, uh, I have the luxury of, um, you know, as somebody that helped start the organization, you know, seeing these different events and different people that are speaking, and actually, I didn't know you were speaking. And I've been reading this book. I've been listening to it. I've been reading it, and uh, and really enjoying it. And I, I heard you're speaking, and I tried to politely say to the person that was doing the interview, "Hey, can you not do the interview? Is it cool if I do it? Because I've got a lot of questions." So, uh, thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. Um, let's let's uh, let's just start uh, with uh, with you as a as an entrepreneur and the company that you started. With Behance. So, well, actually, with first, where I'd like to start is we, we have this, and there's this chart in this book, in the messy middle, that has this. Uh, we've probably all seen it, where it's sort of like the, the curve of success and, you know, the, the career curve, and just kind of goes like this. And then the reality is, is it's sort of like actually like this really up and down, you know, sort of crazy. We sometimes see it like so the squirrely, just lines going all crazy. And then finally, sometimes it goes up, sometimes it doesn't. Where, where are you in your career right now? Like, where do you see. You've had a very interesting career, but where where do you see yourself right now on the career curve? I mean, listen, I think that uh, I I like to stay in the middle because I feel like that's what keeps us grounded and hungry and hustling and, for me, like deeply engaged. And I find myself most happy personally when I feel like all my skills are being flexed in some way. And I think that in middle journeys, that's where that's where you're put to the test. So uh, I'm part of the reason why, because I had left Adobe, after they acquired my company 
and came back in this new chief product officer role because I felt like there was a lot to fix and a lot of opportunity to like define new mediums like augmented reality and VR and I think that typically creatives have a big role in all that stuff. So, um, but I also knew I was getting myself back into a really messy middle. Um, and uh, and when you're a VC, you're not in the messy middle. Um, it's it's a uh, it's a different it's a different ball game. So. I, um, so yeah, I, I, I find that I enjoy, t in some masochistic way, the volatility. Um, I find that uh, there's you know, a ton of discussion, by the way, about the starts of things and the finishes of things, but there's very little conversation about how to ma navigate that volatility in the middle and why we're not our best selves at both the lows and the highs of, of that volatility. Yeah, it, it feels like, too, over the last five or six, seven years, I've been in the Valley for uh, 13 years, but it feels like over this last period of time, like, being an investor is like the is like the peak of success. Like if you can become an investor, like you've made it, you know, and and you were an investor, uh, and with a with an unbelievably good firm, a great firm, and and then you left that, and then you die back into the the mess. So first of all, like, is being an investor like is that <laughs> is it as good as investors make it out to be on Twitter? Is it not that good? Like, what? It, yeah, do you well, know what I'm talking about? It might. So like let's it, uh, let's unpack this a little bit. Uh, <laughs> um, I think that. Um, well, well, first of all, I, I was very naive going into venture capital because I just assumed that it was all largely the same, and you were either at a great firm or a medium firm or an up-and-coming firm, and I, I blatantly generalized everything in that way. And the truth is very different, right? Every firm has its own playbook. You know, some firms get to see every company that has term sheets from other firms because they want to see if your firm will give them a deal at the last minute. You know, some firms are like hustling and trying to get every deal they can get. Um, you know, and many firms are playing a certain edge or angle of some value-added services, which are always overpromised and underdelivered. By the way, always. Um, you know, and and I think that. As an angel investor, I found that one of the things that was helpful to me is that I was also making product, and I was I had a product and design background and obsession, and uh, and teams that found that I could add a lot of value with a little input because of my obsession in those areas would come to me, and I would be able to help them in a small way, and also learn from it and apply it to my day job. But uh, when I left and and went into venture capital full time, I assumed that the same superpowers and the same interests would just apply and were transferable in any kind of context and any type of firm at any stage or early stages at least. But again, I found that it's very different. Very quickly, like three weeks in, I felt like I'd hung my spurs way too early and I wasn't doing what I love anymore. And then I realized that any minute spent with an entrepreneur that you weren't going to invest in was in some ways a poor minute spent because you should always be optimizing for the deal that you're trying to close. That's the VC mindset. My mindset is I like to talk about the potential of the product and the potential of people, and that just gets me excited. And sometimes that leads to nothing now but something three years from now. But that's just not how VCs necessarily think in like the deal flow mentality of Silicon Valley. So I learned a lot of things like that, like what my interests and superpowers were really quickly. And then I realized like, oh my God, like I'm not, I don't want to do this for the next 15 years. And that was like the journey of uh, how do I, you know, what do I figure out, how do I figure out what I'm, what I'm actually meant to do? So it was in some ways like a career, you know, unexpected career blip for me of suddenly being like, wait, I'm not in the right place. I did everything that everyone was telling me I should do next. Like everyone was like, you should be an investor. You should join a firm like Benchmark and everything else. But 
it um it didn't click. Okay, so one more question on this, and then we'll move on to more interesting things. But I, I like one of the most interesting things about benchmark is that, and why every investor in the world wants to be a benchmark partner because everyone has equal e economics, right? So you come in even if you didn't, you weren't in the fund, you get equal economics in the deals that that are that are. You know they're closing. Is that am I understanding? Yeah, that and it's an amazing group? model. Right, um, amazing yeah. model. And and if you talk to investors, they this is what they say on the outside that there's the best investor partner dynamics at Benchmark better than any other firm. That's what that's what outsiders say. I don't know if it's true, but the question that this is the question is with all of these deals. I mean Benchmark with Uber. You know with all these crazy deals coming down the pipeline. I think the you know there's this uh, there's a huge financial windfall. And maybe you negotiate these things, and that's none of our business, probably. I haven't read about it. But there's this huge financial windfall coming if you just stay there, if you just stick it out a while. And, and it feels like you decided to forego some of those things in order to do what you thought was the right thing to do or because your heart wasn't in it. Well, it, listen, you have, to be, you have to be in a thing where you feel you'll be very successful. Yeah. And I just, I didn't. You know, we all we all are in moments in our career where like, wow, like we feel like we see the matrix and it's like, okay, I can figure this out, I can solve any problem. I, I didn't feel that way. Mm. And I um you know, and it was sort of like a jolt to me because I um you know, I, I'd expect I had expected to. So and I don't think that um you can uh you know, you can be really like that successful and, and most importantly happy over the course of your life. So for me, it was like, okay, do I want to be doing this for the next 15 years? Am I, should I be doing this? And this was like mutual with my partners. Like they saw that I was having a hard time like loving what I was doing as well. And so then it's a question of, okay, well, what, 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 and what my partners did is said like, well, what relationship would you want? Like what role would you want? And I opened like Quip and I made a doc of venture partner. And I kind of described to them what I felt like I would thrive in doing. And, uh, and they were like, great. And so we, you know, we, we talked about a way for me to stay as part of the family. But listen, like, I think the, the, the career lesson I learned was don't do something just because everyone's telling you it's what you should be wanting to do. Um, recognize that feeling fully utilized is directly correlated with happiness. And just mm. because you take a job that will pay you a little more, right. if you're not leveraging the skills that you have or utilizing your potential, like you're going to start to feel a little depressed. I was starting to listen to all this like Johnny Cash music and I realized <laughs> something was wrong. Um, so, so I think you have to like have those, have those you know, moments of truth. Otherwise you're not going to be successful in the role. Yeah. Well, and I think is, 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 is we're trying to decide, is this something we should go for? Should we leave the great job that we have? Should we leave the money that we have on the table? Should we go join a startup that is the success is not assured and taking a pay cut to do so, but it feels like the right thing. I think that's, you know, we all, probably everyone in this room has wrestled with that at some point. And it's interesting to see, you know, somebody, you know, where you're at kind of continue to wrestle with those things and be what sounds like very intellectually honest about it. Cause it's uh, like the logical thing is just stay there and, you know, put your head down for a few years and financially logical, but like, what's the logical thing for me, for my progression in my heart, what I should do. And it's, I want to keep building. I want to. I want to. You know, keep making Im an impact. Totally. And you know, I have. I am. You know, I still work with um, work with the team and you know, on different things. And I'm still, you know, actively engaged as an investor. You know, especially on the seed stuff. So, you know, I, I tried to find a way to be able to do. You know, what I love doing. It's yeah. Simple as that. But I, I just. You're right. Like you can't. You can't be too. You can't fall to like the spotlight of seduction. 
And that is, we all have those, right? It's either some promotion in an area that you don't want or a job you don't really want, but you know, pays really well or something else. And it's just, I just find though that, uh, you know, over time, a labor of love always pays off, just not how you would expect. Mm. But the corollary is also, or the opposite is also true. Like over time, I think something that you don't enjoy doing also um, hurts you in ways you never expected. And I, I find both of those to be true. Yeah, that's a great insight. That, uh, and I wonder if you could just go a little bit deeper on that of the things that, the things that when you say like in the, in the long run, it maybe pays off or like if it doesn't financially pay off or like, is, can I still look at that as a win? I mean, can I look I at... I think there's so many examples. I'm, I'm thinking of like yeah. as an entrepreneur, you know, totally. going, it's like, you know, hey, I, I felt like I followed what I needed to do or what I was supposed to do and it completely bombed. And I, it's I've more had, nuanced because yeah. here's, here's the thing. I mean, and we all have stories like this, but I, I just, my friends who have literally like been super passionate and knowledgeable about something and have just pursued it even despite sometimes the short-term you know, optimizations they could have made. What ended up happening, even if the, the venture failed, is that they met like that great designer or engineer that they worked with on their next venture, or they met that investor who passed but had a lot of respect for them and who was their first investor in their next venture because they were doing like what they love and they were therefore coming through in the right way in their best way to everyone that they met. And how do you, is that a success or a failure? Like did it bomb, but then it became this other thing. I, I, so that's the thing, like I, I've just seen so many examples of, and I'd love to study this from a, from a more like um, quantitative way, but I've seen so many examples of people, you know, building their networks and other things that happen circumstantially because they were just like getting closer incrementally to the things that they love doing. And I've also seen people, you know, take that job that was higher paying in finance or wherever else because they couldn't say no. And then they get like this like midlife crisis and are having affairs and are miserable. True story. Is forecasting enough when you need to analyze and take action? Meet the startup that says no. What's needed is super forecasting. Hi, it's Mike Stiles, and this is Meet the Startups for the week of August 26th, brought to you by Oracle for Startups. How can you be happy with forecasting when there's something out there called super forecasting? Startup founder Tony Nash and his company, Complete Intelligence, are making super forecasting possible with a highly automated data-intensive AI solution. Part of what makes it so super is there's zero human bias. No spin or wishful thinking allowed. Complete Intelligence is helping organizations visualize financial data, make predictions, and adjust strategy on the fly. That gets you things like smarter purchasing, better supply chain planning, smarter cost and revenue decisions, but it's intense. More than 15 billion data points are run on Complete Intelligence's platform every day. To get where they needed to be on performance and price, the company moved from Google Cloud to Oracle Cloud. That did it. Computing is at peak performance and Complete Intelligence's global customers are reaping the benefits. That's super. We asked Complete Intelligence CEO Tony Nash what this pandemic has done to forecasting and supply chains. We've seen a big shift in how managers are looking at their supply chains. As a result of COVID-19, companies are eager to understand their cost and revenue risks. Things like concentration risk and the timing of their cost, that sort of thing. We're helping our customers with timely and accurate information to make smarter cost and better revenue planning decisions. What startup doesn't like better performance and lower costs? Oracle has a startup partnership for you at oracle.com startup. 
Uh, I'd love to talk about uh, community. And uh, you, could you talk to us a little bit about how you, in the early days of Behance, how you thought about building the community there? First of all, just tell us, like, what does community mean to you? Yeah, so it's a great question because, I mean, the community is thrown around a lot. And I think that a lot of companies intuitively know that building a community is a competitive advantage. You're going to keep these people. It's a retention strategy. It's something that um, ends up growing through a network effect in a way organically that you don't even have to pay for. And there's so many lucrative aspects of community. I think the first insight is that, uh, you know, is, is, is that a great community starts as a utility. For Behance, people wanted attribution for their work. They wanted to better manage their portfolio online and get discovered more, more easily and, and at a higher velocity. Um, for Pinterest, people wanted to have a better version of Delicious, that bookmarking engine that wasn't visual. Well, Pinterest was visual. It was like, OK, now you can pin the things that you like that you may want to buy. And initially, that was for you, even though, of course, now Pinterest is about discovery. And so there, and, and Behance is also about discovery in some ways and connecting to get jobs and whatever. So I think that a lot of communities end up having sort of secondary deliverables, but they need to ground themselves with like what their core utility is for participants in the, in the first mile of the customer experience even. So um, I also think that another litmus test for community is, um, is whether you can, whether you kind of feel weird using the utility that that community provides under another person's brand. Like, so for example, a lot of people say SoulCycle is a community. Well, actually, it's a place you know, down the street that has bicycles, right? However, when you use one of these, these, these devices, have this experience at a non-SoulCycle branded class, it just doesn't feel the same, especially if you've been inaugurated into the SoulCycle experience. And so in some ways, that's like a litmus test for is it a community or not? Well, when I spin at another place, it doesn't feel the same. So yes, it is, because otherwise, it's just branding and other you know, sort of hard to describe elements. So I think when you're trying to build a community in a business, you're trying to build those, those, those extensions that just you know, distinguish the experience. You, you talk in the, in, in the book about being, uh, if you're, when you're building a community, you should be a steward versus being an owner. And I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about how, which I think a lot, of, a lot of us that are in community building feel that way, and those are the best communities, the ones that are sort of not intrinsically motivated, they're sort of in it for the right reasons. Um, but how do I build a community on top of a business uh, and still sort of keep what makes it special, but also do what's right for building a, building a big company? Right, well, it's, um, it's it's an important question, especially as companies grow and start to take advantage of, of their communities for revenue uh, or go through an acquisition. I mean, I remember one of the first things that I had to teach my colleagues at Adobe when we were acquired in late 2012 uh, was that Behance doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the people. Like if everyone goes in and clicks delete for their portfolio tomorrow, like it's, it's nothing. Literally the whole thing evaporates into nothing. So we can't call it the Adobe community. And we also can't start to be the overlords that police the community. We have to be able to allow people to post things in their portfolio that we wouldn't want to post on our own web pages as adobe.com. I mean, there are photographers who focus on nudity. They should be able to focus, post their portfolio online. You know, there's, there's all kinds of creative expression that one, would, you know, one person would not like and another person would. So the, 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 um, the important thing to do when you're operating a community is to have that ethos of stewards, not owners. So what does that mean? It means you can't tell people what to do in the community. 
you have to have policies that are transparent and you can enforce them, but you can't like just make decisions. You know, it's not like a, it is more of a democracy because people need to feel like it's theirs as opposed to yours. And also um, every, you know, there has to be a certain degree of transparency. There has to be, um, there has to be a process of reconciling different viewpoints. You know, we have in Behance all the time, someone comes to someone else's work and says, you, you ripped off my idea. Okay, so that can be on the spectrum of you literally took my imagery and you're using it without my permission to you, you kind of leveraged my style and you created something entirely new with it. And like, how do you determine what gets taken down? You know, where is the line? And so that's another example of like stewardship as opposed to like ownership. When you started, you know, what phase of building Behance did you actually start that? And then what were the initial, like, is it something you, said, hey, we're going to build a community with this? Is it something that just happened? And what was the reaction of the other people in the company or people around you to spending time and energy doing that? Yeah, in our case, it was always, it was always from the very onset. It was part of it. it yeah, was I mean, we, you, know, we, you always have to have empathy. You know, one of the cardinal rules, I believe, and one of the reasons why a lot of Silicon Valley startups fail is because they're founded out of passion for the solution as opposed to empathy with the person suffering the problem. Mm -hmm. And so we get very strong-willed about like what we believe is the end state and the solution to this big problem in the world. And then we just go off and solve it and we work two or three years. And then we realize that we were 30 degrees off of like what the right solution was, AKA we didn't have true product market fit that would scale and therefore it folds. And so with Behance, uh, one of my fears was always like being 30 degrees off. And so we would have a lot of, um, a lot of like in real life time with our customers. That was the physical aspect of our community. We'd have these portfolio reviews where we would physically get people together and review their portfolio. Now that's not something that scales really easily. That's burdensome and expensive to some degree, but it like really kept us grounded with what the customer was suffering from, why portfolios were such a painful process, why you know, people felt they never got attribution for the work they did that helped someone else's portfolio. Like it, hope, it opened us up to the Pandora's box of issues. And I think it was efforts like that that helped us, you know, really, really nail the community problem for us. And I've heard you say that actually the offline, in the future, the offline part of the community getting together in person is actually this competitive advantage for startups. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, totally it is. And I know you're in this space, so I'm going to do passionate. a quick, quick I'm infom passionate. infomercial. But no, seriously, actually, I believe that um, it, we are, we're never fully present. Um, on digital experiences these days. We're always carelessly engaging with everything. We go to websites and we kind of half read it. You know, we scroll down and look for some keyword or image or whatever. We don't ever fully take in anything. And I would argue that the only time we fully engage our senses and take in something with an open mind is in, a, in spaces like this, where we talk to people and we look at their eyes and they're not like tuning out to like, you know, tuning into five other things at the same time. And so in some ways, that has become a competitive advantage to companies to be able to have that sort of experience with their customers. And I think um, unless you have like a sales event, which some people don't want to go to, then it's really like conferences and community gatherings, like customers meeting customers, helping each other. And if you can prove that space to be valuable, then you've got a leg up on all of your competition. It feels like that uh, the digital world and the promise of social media and, you know, going online and meeting people that it, it, there was so much, it was like it was so hyped up. Like this is gonna be so amazing. Like you're connected with the whole world and all these great things are gonna happen. And in the reality, like a lot of terrible things happen online. And like 
it's made us less connected it's made us it's made us less involved and less engaged and more sad and all these it's had all these negative effects and it feels like the sort of the world is sort of we see this every day like it's swinging back like saying like no you know what like life wasn't so bad before my smartphone like i think i was happier before i was checking instagram six times a day and so it's i think it's people building products like we got to figure out how to to bring more joy into people's lives and if if as you're saying like and it sounds like you figured this out you figured this out a decade ago uh, or, or longer like getting in front of them as difficult as it is like this can have a real impact not just on them liking your product more but just on making them better human beings i think it's true and uh you know it's funny like i um I travel a lot between the East Coast and West Coast, and I have this sacred time in the plane. And I find that this forced period of disconnection is also a competitive advantage because everyone else is like pecking away at the collective inboxes of their life, trying to stay afloat, living someone else's to-do list, right? And here I'm forced to, for a few hours, think and like unplug. And I love it when the Wi-Fi is out because it's like, oh, all right, yeah. I get to, um, I get to process. And, and I start to, I, I've started recently to like pay attention to you know, what do I, what do I end a flight with that I didn't have before I started the flight? And sometimes it's, you know, it's a potential solution to something. It's some intro I should make that I never thought about until I really crunched through the problem and who would be the right person to work with that startup or who would be the right partner for this product or whatever. And uh, so maybe disconnection is a competitive advantage in an ultra connected world. And, uh, and maybe, you know, we should, we should take that to heart. What, uh, we're going to talk about the messy middle. Uh, and a couple of things I just want to say that I really like about this book is uh, one, it really feels like it was written by somebody that's built a lot of stuff and really lived it. So a lot of books you read about business and about entrepreneurship are like written by professors or PhDs and it makes no sense. But it really, I really like, as you were telling some of these stories, like I really felt like I've had that exact same story. And the other thing that I really like about it is it's, I think most entrepreneurs, we have ADD in some form or another. And like, you can just sort of jump in and grab an insight and jump out. And it could be f- literally like there, there are chapters that are one page. And it's, it's like you can get in and get five minutes, two minutes, 10, 15, 20 minutes, and then you know, kind of come and go. I think the chapter with one page is, is, is titled There is Power and Brevity. <laughs> but yes. <laughs> no, I mean, listen, I made, this, I, I made this book for the very busy entrepreneur or the builder who realizes that he or she does not have enough time in the day to get through their own to-dos and whatever else and would sh- rather spend their time with their team and their family and other, you know, and, and, and this was meant to be like, it really was modeled off of this notion of when you call that like incredible uh, advisor for specific things and they just like have a 10, 15 minute conversation with you, but you leave with something that helps you think differently about like a problem you're solving. I tried to accumulate a lot of these insights from a lot of advisors of mine and people that I worked with, um, and and lessons I've learned the hard way to try to like have you know a, a lot of those in that in that in that way you just described. Well, I'd love to I'd love to jump into a few of these and maybe we can just fire through them. All right. And you can give us sort of the, some of the cliff notes insights and people can can get the book and and read it deeper. So the first one I'd love to hear about is playing the long game requires moves that don't map to traditional measures. Of productivity. Tell tell us about what that means. Well, um, I mean, it kind of goes also back to your original you know, VC question. Also, it's it's that uh, it's that the you know it's the 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 little things do make a big difference, and the 
uh, one of my you know favorite um, mantras, you know that uh, that I learned actually from Bill Gurley was this notion of the 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 greatest businesses you know do remarkably unscalable things in the beginning. And now that uh, is a good example of a of something that doesn't map to traditional measures of productivity or doing something that frankly costs way more than you're gaining from it and is not a scalable solution for your enterprise. And you know, most people would say, why the hell are you doing that? But you could say to Airbnb, why did they go and take photographs professionally of the early people that posted on their website? Like that's not scalable. I mean, there's a lot of examples of many different ventures. And so I think part of it is, um, you know, part of it is knowing, you know, what those things are and investing in them. Um, part of it is ch is challenging the metrics you use. You know, I think metrics are as dangerous as they are good. You know, we can optimize towards the wrong things and feel great about this quarter and feel horrible about ourselves this year. And so it's it's also a question of making sure you don't fall into those traps. In the non-scalable things, is it more about finding uh, insights in those moments or is it more about doing things that just the incumbents just won't do? I think it's more the latter. I think that uh, that when you when you do these non-scalable things with customers, right? First of all, you're building a quality of relationship with a customer that a big brand will not, right? So that's that's the incumbent part. You are gaining knowledge and insights that um, that they would never that they would never get. Um, you're also just building the motion of you know how you engage customers. And of course, some aspects of that will have to be scaled over time, but you can identify the few things that are the art as opposed to the science. And I always like to think that the science of business is scaling, the art of business is the things that don't. And if you can identify the one or two pieces of art in your business, for Doubletree, it's the cookie that they give you at the check-in. I don't know, there's a lot of examples of like the, the art thing that has been identified that you can't track to a bottom line, you can't necessarily quantify the cost, except you know that it distinguishes you. Hmm. Uh, just stay alive long enough to become an expert. Oh, you know, I mean, I, I feel firmly that uh, a couple of things on this front. First of all, I do think one of the competitive advantages in the startup world is sticking together long enough to figure it out. And it's amazing. It's especially hard here because every day there's headlines that make you feel like everyone else is making more progress than you're making. And enough of those headlines and stories from friends and you're suddenly gonna be like, you know what? I should probably leave this company and join something else. And so we're always joining something hot. And as a result, we're not staying somewhere long enough to make something hot. And the team has to stick together long enough to learn its chemistry, almost like a, you know, a, a sports team that works together and starts to like understand when they're being passed to without even seeing, like you just develop these motions. So I loved building a company in New York in 2005 because we were, there were no people in the tech community. So my team stuck together for five years of bootstrapping, yeah. two years as a venture-backed business, um, largely because there was just that sense of loyalty and that culture that we had built. And I believe that had we been in this frenetic frenzy of headlines and other opportunities, we would have never stayed together long enough to figure this out, Behance in our case. So how, do we, so how do we do that, I think, is one part. The second piece um, is related to um, becoming an expert, right? And, and the benefits of not being an expert in the beginning. You know, when you enter an industry, whether it's a lot of us are starting companies and in industries that, are, that we're neophytes in. You know, transportation, Travis and Garrett, and those folks were certainly not experts in transportation and 
Every, in most of these companies that have disrupted an industry were made by outsiders. And the reason is because they were willing to ask very naive questions, right? That no one else would ever do. And they were willing to try things that people would not try because they knew too much. But what they did do is they became experts in their industry and then were able to leverage these modern practices that they took in order to really change something. You know, you with bootstrapping the company, I wonder, like, do you think, is there some in the companies that you've seen that have bootstrapped in the beginning and, and, that, and those that have raised from the beginning, is there a difference in the way people stick together? Like, it feels like that team taking five years to figure it out and then, I know, I know you, had, you had ups and downs, you had some successes and you had some times that were really difficult, but do you, is there any, like, is there a glue with the bootstrap that, is it the same as venture-backed? Is it different? Well, what have you seen? Yeah, well, I think it's, um, it's, it's different in the sense that, uh, there has to be more transparency and there has to be more uh, resourcefulness when you don't have resources. And um, we can talk about that later if you want. But I, um, you know, I think the most important thing we built was, and it sounds trite, but a culture, right? We actually loved working together and that kept us together when we were pretty hopeless. Uh, there, we also did a lot of hacks and tricks to stick together, which we can, I don't wanna preempt your questions, but you know, there were a lot of like, rewirings of the short-term reward system of the team that were required to get us to stick together for that long and stay loyal. Well, let's let's talk about culture. So one of the things that it was, I thought was an interesting insight is that you talked about how culture is created through the stories that your team tells. Could you could you tell us why that matters? Well, I think that uh, the, the a nice analogy I like to use to the startup journey is that, especially as the leader of a startup team, is that you are driving... Um, this like 10 day road trip with the windows blocked out in the back seat. So you, so your team can't see where they are and if they're making any progress. And if you narrate them through the progress and milestones you're making along the journey, they will stay sane. But if you just leave them in the dark and tell them, here's where we're going, like sh be quiet and do your job and I'll get you there. Like they're going to go. Sounds like an crazy. awesome road trip. It's <laughs> depends what you're doing in the back seat, I guess. <laughs> but, um, but I think that uh, it's, we are the narrators of the journey. Like our job is to narrate the progress we're making. And there's research to back this up. So this woman that I studied with at business school named Teresa Mabale at Harvard studied creativity in businesses. And she did this big journaling study where she asked thousands of people to journal every day, write what they had done, and also write um, whether they were, how motivated they were. And she basically found this correlation between progress and progress. So if you felt like you were making progress, you were more likely to make more progress. And when you felt like you were making no progress, you just lost motivation. Which goes to say that there's a chicken and egg problem here. You actually have to kind of merchandise progress to make people start making progress. And so there's a lot of great tricks you can use in an organization and as, as a leader. You can narrate the team through the milestones. When there aren't any clear milestones, make them up. Um, when, you, when you don't have like real rewards like revenue and bonuses and whatever, create rewards. I mean, a funny th story for us is that we made up a name for our company, Behance, and it meant nothing. So when you typed in Behance in Google, it meant, do you mean enhance? Do you mean enhance? Do you mean enhance? And we were like, damn it. Like, at some point, we will no longer be a mistake. And so we decided on a six-month time frame, we were no longer to be a mistake. And we did all the SEO work we could do. We got so many portfolios published in that time frame with link backs to blogs. We were playing a game that was actually pushing us in the right direction long term for the business. But the near term reward was just that Google would recognize us. 
And then lo and behold, it's like 2007, an engineer comes into work, types in Behance, and we came up as a legitimate search result. And I kid you not, Beyonce became super popular in 2008, and we like lost our SEO again. <laughs> it was, <laughs> I, do, I do love that story. Uh, and you don't think it was because after you got it, everybody moved on to something else, or you really think? We got it back again. <laughs> you got it back pretty quickly. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you got to like make these games, and you have to. But this is the part of leadership of startups that no one trains you for. And it's actually even weird to talk about because you're, you know, usually you're just talking about strategy and hiring people and whatever else, but you have to have this repeating yourself and uh, repeatedly, you have to have this narrative, you have to make up these goals and you have to like merchandise it. So here's another, here's another one of your in insights. When you have the right people, there are no rules for structure. Explain why that's the case. And, and, how I know if somebody is one of those right people or not. Yeah, so, well, here's, here's how I would put it, is that um, when you start, uh, when you start uh, a company or a, a team, and it's two or three people around the table who are super aligned with what needs to happen, you don't need any process mm -hmm. because you're ambiently always talking about things, you're totally aligned, you're all there for the right reason, like everything is just so greatly aligned that you're so you're you're able to run circles around incumbents. You're able to build so much in that early period. It's mind-boggling how product how productive you can be. And then you hire more people in more regions, in more groups with different leaders and structures. Some people get more equity than others, and suddenly there are a lot of misalignments in the organization. You know, she's working on this because she thinks that's most important, but that's not as important as this thing, which he thinks is most important. And like, and then everyone's just kind of working in different ways. And what does a leader do? They throw process at the problem. Okay, well now we're gonna have a stand up every Tuesday morning and we're gonna nominate so-and-so to be our program manager and he's gonna keep us on point and we're gonna have these check-ins and oh, everyone has to make their daily and their weekly KPIs and like, and you, you build process and to some degree that's great. But then you sometimes throw so much process that it slows people down, people get demotivated, they start spending more time in process than doing the work that they love doing. And that's when you become the incumbent that a startup disintermediates by not having so much process. And so if you think about it, when you have a misalignment in a team, big or small, there's always two ways to solve it. One is process, but one is also more alignment. So what are the shortcuts to more alignment? One of my secret weapons is design. I find that a prototype is worth a thousand meetings. When you can show people what we're trying to achieve, one of the things I also always encourage teams to do, in fact, in a call on the way here with an entrepreneur, is build your splash page before you even start building your product. It was, why does that make sense? Because your splash page, your website, is a proxy for every story you will tell a new prospective employee, a new investor, and not to mention customers, but it is also a way of forcing alignment across the team. It's like, this is what we're trying to build. This is the value proposition, go to market, business model. These are the screenshots that customers will find most compelling. Is everyone aligned? And then from that point on, prioritization is a lot easier. Uh, that's a great insight. And that's, a, uh, that's something that I've never heard before uh, about design, being able to align people. Be frugal, <laughs> that's not one of your insights. <laughs> Be frugal with everything except your bed, your cheer, your space, and your team. Uh, I, I'm like, I'm like having. I say I've done like a hundred of these. <laughs> no one's ever asked me for about that insight, so I'm glad you asked. 
It's it's very well said. So t- talk, why is it important to be frugal on everything except for those things? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, listen, this is, it's really about one of those like penny wise, pound foolish things that um, I think a lot of you know startups do, which is we're trying to save money, we're trying to be nimble, but what are what are the few things that not only have a step function impact on people's productivity, but also like their happiness. And I mean, those are a few examples, obviously, like giving people screen real estate to see as many things as possible and work more effectively. How could you not do that? How could you say, oh, we're gonna get everyone these mini screens because we have a discount a bulk rate or whatever. Um, chairs and you know some of these things like that. Uh, I think space. You know, I, my uh, my co-founder Matthias like really convinced me early on for Behance that the space that we work in impacts the stuff that we create, and uh, and we should spend some money on the space. And I was like, Matthias, we're bootstrapping. Like the last thing we should be doing is buying like plants and rugs and shit like that. Like we got to stay focused on what matters. He's like, no, like this really, it just you know it changes the way you. And maybe that's what helped get us to stick together for five years to figure it out. Like maybe some of these things actually move the needle in ways we didn't anticipate. So you think you have to find the things that you believe are important for like core convictions about health and happiness and then, and then you have to stick with them. Well, and, this, and the space is a great point. And you can get, you can be in a expensive space that feels terrible and you can be in a cheap space that feels wonderful. And I think for me, like, do I walk, like we just rent a new space and it's honestly, it's a dump, but like, when I walked in, I felt like I felt a good vibe. Yeah, you oh, know, we, and we like were it fancy. Felt, it just I just felt, felt creative. Right. Yeah, I felt more creative when I walked in there. And, and I think you're right. Like being in that environment, look, we're sitting in a WeWork, and it's they're beautiful, creative spaces everywhere you go. Uh, it's a good example of that. Like, do I feel am I am I leaning forward when I walk in, or am I like, gosh dang it, like there's no windows in here? Listen, a great company, a great team is a being in itself, right? And so when you're making all these decisions about the team and how you work and you're, you're developing the being that will hopefully answer questions when you're all debating about them. One of the things I always would say with my early colleagues at Behance is that every time we argued about things, and we argued a lot, because we were all very passionate about what, we were, what our views were. Um, Plus you're but, from New York, And right? we're from New York. You know, yeah. <laughs> San Francisco, passive aggressive. No, I did not summon you. It's <laughs> the weirdest thing, it's scary. Just, uh, she like knows that I'm talking about San Francisco. But passive aggressive, New York is aggressive. Anyways, but, um, but I, we always felt like Behance would kind of answer us. And so in some ways, maybe like the way you like treat the environment, you know, is the being that will answer your questions. We're, we're going to take some questions from the audience, and I just have a few more. Uh, in the, ask for forgiveness, not permission. Uh, in the era of GDPR and everything that we're seeing about, you know, you know build fast and break things, like how do, how do I as a startup and I, I wrestle with this, like, how do I as a startup still be scrappy, still like go for it, but like not get myself in a, like a short-term problem or what we see with these big com- some of these big tech companies, like a huge long-term cultural yeah. fabric, you know, of the company problem. It's a great question because I feel like a lot of network effect driven businesses that we all use today, like LinkedIn and others, couldn't, would never be able to be created today because they did stuff that you could never get away with doing today. And it's a, it's a really good question because there is this great hacker culture of we're just gonna figure out growth, we're gonna hack growth, and there are really kosher ways of doing that and there are really questionable ways of doing that. I think as a team you have to decide like what are your principles 
Um, we're never going to let customers lose their data. We're never going to compromise a customer's privacy. What does that actually mean? And then once you define the ground rules, you do have to be creative. You do have to lean in, frankly, a little bit on some of the things you have to do to get growth going. But you have to define what those principles are up front, and you have to recognize like we're in a day, you know, these days where you know, some of those early stage hacks are just not gonna flow anymore. So as we just wrap up, uh, this is one of the most optimistic chapters. You're, 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 this is the other thing I, th I think I really related to your writing because it's very, uh, it's very real, but it's also, it's in some cases like, you know, it's like. Maybe a little too real. No, it, it is, it's very, it is too real, but also you're still optimistic. Like you, you've been, you know, beaten by the startup, you know, machine for, for, I don't know, decade and a half, but you're, you still smile, you know, and I think uh, it's hard. It's hard to stay optimistic. It's hard to take rejection year after year after year. And to your point, like if you don't, if you don't survive, uh, if you can't slow cook yourself and your ideas and become an expert, you're screwed. So, you, you know, you got to, and don't come out, you know, bitter, like, I want to leave the tech industry. I'm at, you know, like, screw this whole thing. Like, so I, I just, you know, so there's an optimistic part of this that I really appreciate, and that is that the best to market is better than the first to market. And tell us why that is the case, because when you're in the thick of the weeds and you see that post, you see that press release, or you yeah. see the funding, it does not feel that way. So how, how, do, how do you, why is the best, why does the best beat out the first? Well, you know, I think that, uh, again, we get very distracted by headlines and we do you know, freak out. I remember I worked really closely with Team Periscope in, um, in the first pivot to video and then like the evolution of their business through the t Twitter acquisition, which all happened pretty quickly actually. And uh, I remember we were working on what we felt was the best damn live stream experience out there. And then um, House Party, or the first Meerk version of it. No, Meerkat, Meerkat launched right. at, at uh, South by Southwest. Exactly, before Periscope launched. Right. And then we had like 1,000 people using every day in this like beta, very large beta. Um, and it was just like, oh, you know, they, they beat us to the punch. But Meerkat had clunky UI. It was just like true MVP. And we had really polished Periscope to be something that we felt was much better. And, uh, and you know, and I think that at the end of the day, Twitter bought Periscope for a reason. You know, I think that a lot of those nuances and edges were thought out and the experience was more scalable and sustainable, like even from a, it was a better desirable experience from a customer perspective. So I think that those are important. I mean, my mantra is this, and I encourage all of you to always be very optimistic about the future with yourself and your teams but be very pessimistic and paranoid about the present. So it's good to be nimble based on what other teams are doing. It's good to be you know, questioning whether tasks are actually gonna happen, um, or are we moving fast enough, or I don't think this was good quality enough. Like That is a very good level of pragmatism and, and pessimism in some ways, but it always has to be countered by, but we're gonna figure this out. Like We have the team to do this. We have the vision. Like We know where we need to be. We've got all of the right projects moving forward. And what we get wrong, we have the, the motions to fix and get right. Like you know, That's the type of thing you wanna leave your team with, but you also you know, have to face the hard truths. Scott Belsky, author of The Messy Middle, founder, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. 
To keep up to date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at any event in a city near you. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling.